Okay, three, two, one. Oh my goodness. Good morning, good afternoon. Whatever it is for you, I hope you're having a fantastic day. My name is Zach Schaumler. This is Strong Opinion Sports. Thank you so very much for tuning in. Today is Friday, March 1st, and uh, oh God, dang, we made it. Uh, I am so happy to be doing a show right now. Um, today was This was a weird week in general. I missed Monday, Tuesday. I was gone. Uh, a friend of mine flew me down to San Diego. I went and saw a San Diego fleet game. We'll talk about that later. But really, it's just been an insanely busy week. You know, I, I moved schools recently. I got a ton on my plate. I uh, College classes. I'm playing college football again, which actually has a ton of meetings and a ton of – we throw in the morning at 6 in the morning all the time. And, you know, team only. We have a good culture where guys – only players show up. We have player-led practices and doing my podcast. It's a lot. I mean, it really is. Uh, frankly, I'm still learning how to balance all of it. So I, I appreciate your guys' patience, and I'm really uh, excited to jump in and do the show today. I want to start with Jason Witten. This is the news story that is, I don't know that other people will lead with this story today, but this is the one that it got my attention and really mattered the most to me. Uh, Jason Witten is leaving the Monday Night Football booth and I signed a one-year deal to play tight end with the Dallas Cowboys. Very, very bizarre. It's a weird story. If you don't know who Jason Witten is, if you've been living under a rock, he's a, no offense, he's a legendary tight end. Um, he played 14 seasons with the Dallas Cowboys from 2003 till 2017. And after the 2017 season, he retired. He walked away from football. He spent the last year in 2018 working as a broadcaster for ESPN's Monday Night Football. And it's just weird all around. He left the gig to join the Cowboys again. And I will admit, look, when he retired from football, it did seem like he had some game left in him. It seemed like he had a couple years left he could have played, a year or two. But a spot broadcasting with Monday Night Football, that's a big, big deal. And uh, when the broadcasting booth opened up, John Gruden left. He became the head coach of the Raiders. And it, it looked like Jason Witten had a really cool opportunity, so he took it. And uh, it really was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for a person like Jason Witten, who otherwise might not have gotten an opportunity like that if it hadn't opened up when it did and if he hadn't taken it when he did. If he hadn't gone for it immediately, they probably would have moved on and found someone else. It's just that Monday Night Football is a gig that once you get it, you never give it up. If you get that chance, you take it. In theory, you, know, you would think Jason Witten could have had a second career after football and done Monday Night Football for years to come. But he left. He chose to play football again. And, and I have a couple thoughts. The first one is, thank God, I, uh, I, I wasn't a big fan of Jason Witten in Monday Night Football. Like, just being frank, I hated Jason Witten on Monday Night Football. It's not his fault. Look, I, I, uh, I'm pretty forgiving of broadcasters. I know how hard this is to do. But Monday Night Football was bad. Boogie, you know, Boogie and Jason Witten, it just, the, the other guy, it didn't work. It wasn't a fit. I really didn't like it. Often I found myself muting my TV for... Monday Night Football games, and I wonder if, if Jason Witten kind of realized doing Monday Night Football was costing him his final chance to play football. If he knew that he was giving up the end of his career for something he didn't really love, wasn't really the best at, and wasn't really passionate about, um, I wonder if he just thought, I don't know, maybe I can't make a career out of this, and I don't want to waste my last chance of playing football in my lifetime. That's very possible. And look, he probably missed playing football. That's the thing I, I really latch on to. I'm not sure if everybody knows my story. You know, I played college football for one year. My brother died. I quit. Took three years off. I went to another school. 
And about a month ago, I started college at Pacific Lutheran University, a school in Tacoma. And uh, I'm playing football again because I missed the game. I missed playing football. And I knew I still had a couple years left where I could play. I knew I had to do it now or never. And I would imagine Jason Witten felt the same way. He said, this is my last opportunity. I must take advantage of it now before I and never, ever get an opportunity to play football again. That's why I find this story with Jason Witten really relatable. I go, oh, it's a guy who likely missed his sport. He wanted to play again. So I got one last chance. I'm not going to give it up. Even for a great, great show, I'm not going to do that. Jason Witten is making $3.5 million next year. He also has $1.5 million in bonuses. He could make up to $5 million total. And I think this is a great, great situation for the Dallas Cowboys. He's a great leader. He can still play. I bet he can still play. Actually, I would think that a year off did Jason Witten some good. It gave him time to completely recover, really fully heal. And uh, I really think that he's just going to have to practice light. He's going to have to do a lot, give himself a lot of time for recovery, a lot of stretching, a lot of working with trainers. That's how all veterans operate in the NFL. All veterans, everyone says this, when they get old, it's not that they can't still do it. It's just more work. I think Jason Witten is going to be very similar. I think he can play a little bit. I think he's going to help the Cowboys. And really, I wonder if, you know, he'll be a good leader. He's always been. He's been a team captain for years in the Cowboys locker room. I actually wonder if a year in the broadcast booth gave him a little bit different perspective that could be valuable to the Cowboys locker room next year. You know, Jason Witten, this is really good for the Cowboys. He has over 1,152 catches. He has 68 touchdowns, over 12,000 receiving yards. Jason Witten is a legendary, will be someday a Hall of Fame tight end. And uh, I, I think this is good for the Cowboys, having him back. I think it's also good for Monday Night Football. I wasn't a fan. I really didn't like Jason Witten as a broadcaster. I, I feel bad. I apologize. I'm sure a lot of people listen to me and go, F that kid, I hate him. Uh, but, and I don't like hating on broadcasters, but I, I just didn't think it worked with ESPN. And I'm really glad that, A, Monday Night Football is going to be better. I think Jason Witten gets the closer that he needs, and I'm really excited to hear the story. It was a shock. It was a surprise. But all in all, I think everybody wins. Football fans get to win, and definitely ESPN fans who like Monday Night Football are going to win next year. I don't know who they're going to replace him with, but it cannot be much worse than it was last year. I'm sorry to say that, but let's be honest. It was not a good run with Jason Witten in the broadcast booth for Monday Night Football. We have a long episode today. We're going to talk about a lot. We're going to talk about uh, a Derek Carr potential trade. We'll talk about the Patriots. We'll talk about Johnny Manziel. I'm going to revisit my, my topic from last episode about the NBA draft. We'll talk in depth about that. We're going to talk a lot about the Alliance of American Football. I know this is, a, this is something I care about tremendously. I really like the AAF. I want it to succeed. We're going to talk about the XFL versus the Alliance of American Football, where they began, where their funding comes from, who's backing them, who, who, what names are involved. I think it's really interesting. The Alliance of American Football is actually being sued right now. We'll talk about that. We have a lot of good stuff ahead. But in the meantime, I want to just remember to tell you guys, if you like Strong Opinion Sports, help me grow by telling your friends about this show. Let's talk about Johnny Manziel. So former Heisman Trophy winning quarterback Johnny Manziel has been released by his team, the Montreal Alouettes, and is no longer a member of the Canadian Football League. Got released. Uh, the, The thing was, the wording that the CFL used was that he contravened or violated his agreement with the CFL. So apparently Johnny Manziel had some kind of behind-the-scenes agreement with the CFL that said if you got to follow these parameters, and if you don't, 
you're no longer going to be allowed to play in our league. So the CFL forced the Montreal Alouettes to release him. And then they banned him from the league and said, you cannot play in this league ever again. And I want to be very clear. Kavis Reed, the Montreal Alouettes general manager, said they like Johnny. They would not have released him unless the only reason they released him was because the league said you have to get rid of him. He violated his agreement. It's very, very weird. It's, it's clear to me that we don't know exactly what happened. We probably never will. I hope we do someday. I think Johnny Menzel's story is just the most fascinating, heartbreaking, interesting story in sports to me. It's just a what it is is like a car wreck along the side of a freeway where it's really ugly, but you can't turn away. You got to look because you just you're so fascinated with what happened. It's too bad. You know, I really wanted Johnny Manziel to succeed. I think we all did. We all wanted Johnny Manziel's story to end well. And it maybe it still could, but it's looking bleaker and bleaker by the day. It's just it's weird one to have a player need special instructions. That means you already screwed up. And then it, it's worse and it's compounded when. It's a quarterback. Your quarterback should be the most reliable, trustworthy person on your roster. You shouldn't ever have to worry about your quarterback's behavior. I, I, I really don't think Johnny Manziel is going to make it. NFL teams are not going to trust him. Would you give the football to Johnny Manziel? I, I don't know. That's the problem with Johnny is he's just not reliable. Uh, you know, it, it's interesting. Part of his job with the Canadian Football League, was to be a grown-up, and he couldn't do it. He just clearly could not get it done. Now, possibly the next step for Johnny Football is to go to the Alliance of American Football. This is a new developmental football league in America. And uh, I think, honestly, they would take him in a heartbeat. They'd love to get the ratings that Johnny Manziel would bring. But they had to make a statement about it today. Charlie Ebersol, the co-founder of the Alliance of American Football, said today they're not sure if they would let Johnny join the league. Uh, the wording they said was they wanted to be clean and clear, which means I think they want to make sure he's not on drugs, he's not <laughs> struggling with addiction. They want to make sure Johnny Menzel's in a good place before they allow him into the league. Uh, it's also worth noting, in 2018, Johnny Menzel had, he played eight games with the Montreal Alouettes in the Canadian Football League. He threw five touchdowns. He had seven interceptions. The truth is, he's basically washed up. I like the guy. I'm rooting for the guy. And uh, sadly... You know, it's it's just a sad story. He's a good human. He seems like a nice person that I want to succeed. Um, but I, I don't think he has the maturity required to be a professional quarterback at any level. I don't think Johnny Mandel can keep it together, which is sad. He reminds me of Josh Gordon. He's a sad story. A guy you want to succeed who just simply cannot keep it together on, really on or off the field. And so I'm rooting for Johnny, but sadly, I don't think it's going to work out. I don't think he's ever going to figure it out. One of the most common rumors circulating around the NFL right now is the idea that the Raiders might trade their franchise quarterback, Derek Carr, and then draft Oklahoma quarterback and Heisman Trophy winning quarterback, Kyler Murray. They're going to trade Derek Carr and draft Kyler Murray. That is the rumor circulating around the NFL. And it's weird. What's interesting is the idea at first makes sense. You can say, some people say that Derek Carr struggled last year. I disagree. I think if you look at the numbers, uh, oddly enough, his stats, he had over 4,000 yards passing, which was his highest ever. This is Derek Carr. Derek Carr, the Raiders quarterback, statistically had one of his better years of all time. He had his, the most passing yards he's ever had, over 4,000. He had a 68% completion percentage, his highest of his career by like 10 points. 
He also had 19 touchdowns and 10 interceptions. Not a terrible year statistically. They didn't do well wins and loss-wise. But he, I don't think he's an awful quarterback. I think he's a, a solid quarterback on a really bad roster. But the catch is that Derek Carr is making a ton of money. He makes $22 million in 2019 this year. It'll steadily decline, actually, till I think 2022 he makes about $19 million, But he's making a ton of money. He's a large salary cap space holder. He's a, he's a big hit to the salary cap. And we've seen teams in the past go to Super Bowls with a template. Teams like they take Russell Wilson, Carson Wentz, Jared Goff, teams that have really cheap quarterbacks. That's a strategy to get to the Super Bowl is you take a young quarterback with a really cheap contract and then build a good roster around them and get to a Super Bowl. If that, in fact, is the Raiders head coach, John Gruden's plan, if his plan is to get a really cheap young quarterback and build a Super Bowl team that way, then yes, it makes sense to trade Derek Carr and draft Kyler Murray. However, a majority of this rumor is based on one quote that John Gruden gave about Kyler Murray. He was talking about how he no longer believes in the idea of a prototypical NFL quarterback. He said, I, I've watched Drew Brees, I've watched Russell Wilson, really short guys, short in stature, who have succeeded at a high level. And then he said this, he said, I'm watching this kid Murray coming out of Oklahoma and I'm putting away all the prototypes I once have. And the media took this quote and just ran with it. They said, yes, this is fantastic. We're going to go. We're going to do our thing. And uh, rumor circulated, and that's how the Kyler Murray rumor began, was a silly, meaningless quote about Kyler Murray that John Gruden gave. You got to remember, look, John Gruden, first of all, he's just saying that short quarterbacks can succeed. He's not saying he loves Kyler Murray. He's not saying he would draft him. He's saying, I believe in Kyler, and we shouldn't put the limitations on him because of his height. This quote definitely does not mean that John Gruden is planning on drafting the Oklahoma quarterback, Kyler Murray. You got to remember, John Gruden worked for ESPN for years as a broadcaster. His job was literally to give interesting, insightful quotes. I really think it's just hard for a guy like John Gruden to turn that off. Once you train your brain to think in really short, interesting sound bites, it's hard to not keep that going. Your brain constantly thinks of, this interesting thing, this interesting thing, this other interesting thing. Your brain is always looking for headlines, little interesting stuff like that. And, and I think that's the only thing John Gruden's really struggling with. Not the only thing, a big thing John Gruden is struggling with as a head coach is he just says too much. He just gives away too much information because that's what he did for years. But to take that John Gruden quote, to take the quote about Kyler Murray, and then jump to the conclusion that John Gruden is planning to trade Derek Carr and draft Kyler Murray, it's silly. It's really a big leap in logic to get from, he's short so he'll make it to, we're going to draft him and trade Derek Carr. It's very weird. So I wanna, I'm doubling down. I've said it before. I'll say it again. The Raiders will not trade their quarterback, Derek Carr. And, and furthermore, the Raiders general manager, Mike Mayock, has repeatedly said, Derek Carr is our franchise quarterback. I don't think they're going to get rid of the guy. I mean, you look at the Raiders roster. They have a lot of issues. They need a pass rusher. They might lose Jared Cook and need a new tight end. The point is the Raiders roster has a lot of flaws, weaknesses, and holes that need to be filled. And I, I really would be surprised if they traded the one roster spot they don't have a need at. They have a quarterback, a really solid quarterback who's played well in the past, Trading away Derek Carr would be, it seems counterproductive, 
And I, I really think you're going in the wrong direction if you get rid of a franchise quarterback like Garrett Carr. I might be wrong. It's going to be fun to watch. If I'm wrong, that's the most interesting story in the world. If Derek Carr gets traded and they do draft Kyler Murray, oh, that, that storyline's there are gold, right? That would be really interesting. As a football fan, I would love that. But I don't think it's going to happen. I just personally, I do not think the Raiders are going to trade away Derek Carr. I think people took a meaningless quote and really jumped in logic and made it a far bigger deal than it ever was. And I do not believe the Raiders are going to trade Derek Carr, and I really don't think they're going to draft Kyler Murray. I think people are taking a giant leap in logic to get there. Let's talk about the Patriots. Let's talk about Golden Tate. Golden Tate is a free agent wide receiver in the NFL. He is 30 years old. He played in the NFL for nine years, been on three teams, played for the Seahawks for four years, played for the Lions for four and a half, almost five years. And at the trade deadline last year, the Lions traded away Golden Tate to the Philadelphia Eagles. Now, recently, Golden Tate, and God, it's, uh, there are so many podcasts. I can't keep track. It's like insane how many. I think there might be as many podcasts as YouTube channels. Like everybody seems to have a podcast. Uh, Golden Tate went on the Pro Style podcast with Earl Bennett, a former NFL wide receiver, and talked about how he said he would love to join the New England Patriots. He talked about how he's at the tail end of his career and he wants to win another Super Bowl. Golden Tate said he would love to play with Tom Brady. And that's not a surprise at all. Look, Golden Tate is, you know, I think actually the better way to put this is a friend of mine is one of the best people in her field at her job. She's in her mid-50s, a similar situation. Like Golden Tate, she's looking for a new place to work. She's, she got a job, different from Golden Tate. She has a job, but she wants a new challenge. And the most important thing to her is not the money. She always talks about, I want to be at a place where I can win, be successful, be challenged, and be a part of a good culture. Golden Tate is looking for that. Golden Tate spent five years with the Detroit Lions. I'm sure he knows what ugly and dysfunctional looks like. Golden Tate played a couple years with the Seahawks, then the Lions, and now I'm sure he wants to go play for some team that can allow him to succeed. I, I have no doubt he's serious about winning, going to the Patriots and winning a Super Bowl. He won a Super Bowl early in his career with the Seahawks. They imploded, fell apart. And I would not be shocked at all if Golden Tate was in a Seattle Seahawks uniform, in a, whoa, a New England Patriots uniform next year playing with Tom Brady. I want to tell another story. Um, I, I want to explain how good the Patriots are at getting the most out of their players. I think the best way to, to explain this is a friend of mine works in the culinary world. She is a kitchen manager. She gets hired by different restaurants. She'll be there for about a year. She develops a system, helps them build their restaurant, and then moves on to another restaurant. Her job and her, her specialty, she lives in Portland, is working with kitchens, restaurants that have really small kitchens, uh, especially places that are like, she worked in food carts for a while. So people who, she, her job is to help kitchens utilize and organize their really, really tiny space and maximize production. That is exactly what the New England Patriots do. The Patriots won a Super Bowl with extreme limitations. They beat the LA Rams because Bill Belichick, the head coach of the Patriots, is like my friend. He's a master at getting the most out of the stuff he has. He knows how to maximize the output of his roster. It's not crazy just that the Patriots win Super Bowls. It's the way the Patriots win Super Bowls. They win Super Bowls with so little 
in comparison to other teams, their rosters are not highly talented with a bunch of really good players. They know how to use the talent they have and get the most out of it. Can you just imagine if Golden Tate joined the New England Patriots? Not only would Golden Tate have a chance to win a Super Bowl, but of all the teams that Golden Tate could choose to sign a contract with, the Patriots would get the most out of Golden Tate. If he, want to put up, if he wants to put up big numbers and have a big impact on a team, the Patriots are exactly where he could do that. In fact, if, if Golden Tate, who knows? Golden Tate knows he's close to the end of his career. If Golden Tate wants to end his career on a high note, he should go to New England. He should go to New England, and they will build a system around his strengths. If I was a player looking for somewhere to be, really not just a player, if I was an employee, whatever it is, I would want to go work for somebody who would build a system around my strengths and around what I'm good at. That is what Golden Tate could do with the Patriots. I, as a football fan, would love to see Golden Tate with the Patriots. I think it'd be interesting. It'd be fun to see Tom Brady with a really good high-level wide receiver like that. And uh, the Patriots, if I was a player, that's a system I absolutely would want to be a part of. I don't know if he's willing to take the pay cut needed. Uh, The Patriots are certainly not going to pay him what he's gotten in the past. But we'll see if Golden Tate really is dedicated to winning and wants to win games and is willing to take a pay cut to do that. He would be a great fit in New England. I want to just give you guys a reminder. I want your help. Uh, My dream is to do Strong Opinion Sports full time. I want to do it as my job. It's my, this, is, you know, this is my favorite thing in the world is doing this podcast. And uh, if you believe in me, please help me grow by telling your friends about the show. Share it on Facebook. Share a link on Twitter. Maybe screenshot the show and put it on Instagram. I, I really don't want to work for a big network. Again, I don't want to work for ESPN. I don't want to work for CBS. Uh, I want to own this show myself and do it my way on the internet, saying whatever I, I want to say. And uh, I want to make it very clear. I don't have a marketing strategy. I don't have a ton of money to buy ad spaces. I'm, I'm really a broke college kid. And uh, my plan is to put all my effort into doing this podcast and making it the very best I possibly can. You know, I, I really, my time is limited. I play college football. I'm a student. I do this show. And I don't have a lot of time for other stuff. But what I have time for is making the very best podcast I possibly can. And so if you believe in me and you, if you believe in this show, please help me grow by telling your friends about this show. Okay, uh, I want to talk about the Alliance of American Football. Today's episode is going to end with a really long topic about basketball. And until we get there, so the thing we're going to do before then, we're going to talk about the Alliance of American Football. We'll talk about the San Diego Fleet, what it was like to go to a game. I went to a San Diego Fleet game last week. We'll talk about the Alliance of American Football versus... Vince McMahon's league, the XFL, and then we will end with basketball. I first want to say this. Week four of the Alliance of American Football is here. Uh, I want to give you guys predictions for what I think is going to happen this weekend and where you can watch every game going on this week in the Alliance. So the first game I want to talk about is the San Diego Fleet at the Memphis Express. This game is on Saturday at 1 p.m. Pacific time, 4 p.m. Eastern time. And uh, it's on, regrettably, it's on Bleacher Report Live, which is, I think, an app or a website, you look up Bleacher Report, you pay the money, and you can watch the game. I think it's also, I think I believe every single game this weekend is streaming on the AAF app. You look up Alliance in the App Store, and you can find Alliance of American Football Games streaming. You don't get a scoreboard, you don't get any sound, but you can watch the game if that's how you want to do it. You can watch it on your phone. Back to San Diego. San Diego and Memphis is a really good matchup this weekend. Uh, here's why it's interesting. 
The San Diego Fleet have really developed an ability to run the ball well. And the Fleet's ability to run the football versus Memphis's ability to play defense is a matchup I really want to watch. Uh, I'm going to pick San Diego to win this game. I think they, they had a statement win last week against the San Antonio Commanders. I think San Diego has a better offense, definitely has a better quarterback. And the reason why, if you don't care about this game, the, another interesting reason to watch is Memphis just benched their quarterback, Christian Hackenberg. They're moving on to Zach Mettenberger, the former LSU quarterback. I don't think it matters who plays quarterback for Memphis. I think their offensive coaching is a big problem, and we can test that theory out this weekend. If Zach Mettenberger does a great job, he's going to prove me wrong. If Zach Mettenberger comes out and really struggles and doesn't play well, all that will do is confirm and probably help my theory which is that I think the coaching is the issue in Memphis. It's not just the quarterbacks. It's also the fact that Mike Singletary is their head coach and the coaches do not appear to trust or want to trust their, their quarterbacks for the Memphis Express. The second game I want to talk about is the Orlando Apollos at the Salt Lake Stallions. This game happens at, it's on Saturday at 5 p.m. Pacific time, 8 p.m. Eastern time. It's on NFL Network. And uh, this game, Salt Lake Stallions are, are better than people realize. They're one and two. They have only one win, but they're a lot better than their record shows. Week one, their quarterback, Josh Woodrum, got hurt, and he was out for a game and a half. That really cost him the first two weeks of the season. Week three, Josh Woodrum returned and uh, beat the Arizona Hotshots. It was a good win. I just I really think this game could be closer than people expect, and uh, I think the Orlando Paulos, I'm going to take them to win the game. Orlando's a better team. They simply have... One of the best teams in the entire league. But I do think the Orlando Apollos versus the Salt Lake Stallions is a better matchup than people realize and a better matchup than people might give it, be giving it credit for. And I, I certainly will be watching tomorrow on NFL Network. The third game I want to talk about is the San Antonio Commanders at the Birmingham Iron. This game takes place on, it's on Sunday, March 3rd. This is at 1 p.m. Pacific time, 4 p.m. Eastern time on CBS Sports Network. I think this is a, a weird matchup, an interesting matchup, because the San Antonio Commanders started so strong. They played really well. They dominated San Diego week one. In week two, they had a close loss to the Orlando Apollos, who are probably the best overall roster in this league. And then in week three, they fell apart. They got crushed by the San Diego fleet. And so it's going to be really interesting to see how the Commanders respond. How does San Antonio respond to getting crushed the way they did last week? I'm going to pick the Birmingham Iron to win this game. They're 3-0. They play some of the most consistent football in the league. They run the ball really well. They play good defense, have a really smart quarterback, Luis Perez, who does a great job. But I don't think this is a gimme. I think the Birmingham Iron are my, my team to win this game. But the San Antonio Commanders are going to make it very interesting, and I think they could show some resilience. We're going to learn a lot about their fortitude this week. How do they respond to getting crushed? They lost 31-11 to last week. In San Diego, how do the San Antonio Commanders respond? The fourth game I want to talk about is the Atlanta Legends at the Arizona Hotshots. This game is on Sunday. It's a, the night game, 5 p.m. Pacific time, 8 p.m. Eastern time on NFL Network. And sadly, I'm sorry to say this, but if the Atlanta Legends are involved in a football game, I just don't care. Uh, they, are, they are really, really bad. They're awful. Probably the worst team in the entire league. The only reason to even give this game any consideration is because Arizona's quarterback, John Wolford, is returning from an injury. Um, he might be fun to watch, but this is an easy pick for me. The Arizona Hotshots are probably going to crush the Atlanta Legends, and I think it's very possible the Atlanta Legends are going to go 0-10 this year. They might not win a single game. If they win a game this year, that's going to be a huge 
really, really impressive feat because the Atlanta Legends are just disorganized. They're not playing good football, and they, they really probably need to make a quarterback change away from Matt Sims and into Aaron Murray. But even, he, even their backup quarterback, the guy from Georgia, is just not that good. And so, uh, sadly, the Atlanta Legends are really struggling, and uh, I don't think they're any good. So those are the four, ga- uh, the four games this week in week four of the Alliance of American Football. Again, I think that the San Diego Fleet are going to beat the Memphis Express. The Orlando Apollos should beat the Salt Lake Stallions. The Birmingham Iron will probably beat the San Antonio Commanders, and the Arizona Hotshots should beat the Atlanta Legends. I want to talk about the experience of a game. So this last weekend, I went to an Alliance of American football game. Uh, a good friend of mine flew me down to San Diego and uh, took me to a game. It was a blast. I really, I'm happy to report it was a great experience. It was a really good time. And uh, I think it's important to clarify, the Alliance of American football is for people who love football. It's not for people who are casual fans who just want to have a good time. If you love football and you want to have a great experience, you're going to enjoy going to a game. Have a beer, drink a hot dog. Um, I, I look, I went to San Diego Stadium. San Diego Stadium is really old. It's it formerly Qualcomm, now it's SDCCU Stadium. And uh, it's a weird layout, it was old, but it was fine. And, you know, there were about 14,000 people there. I Googled it. It's just a fun atmosphere. It's not the biggest crowd I've ever been to. I've been to really big games with wild crowds. I watched Washington State beat uh, USC, I stormed the field. It was, I worked a college game day game last year. That was a blast. I've been to really big college football games. This is nowhere close to that. It's not a rowdy, crazy crowd, but there is some energy, right? When the San Antonio fleet, San Diego fleet had a 60-yard touchdown run or they got a pick six, everybody freaked out. They went wild, and uh, it's fun to be a part of that. So despite brief moments of excitement, there, it's really, for the most part, a really relaxed, chill crowd, um, but I think it's still a really fun thing you can have an enjoyable time at. You know, go get a hot dog, bring someone you want to have a conversation with, uh, probably like I would bring my dad. I would probably bring a, a girlfriend. A date would be really fun. But if you want to go have a conversation and watch a football game, it's not loud enough. You can't talk to each other. You can sit, you can chill. It's kind of like a baseball game actually. And uh, if you love football and just want to have a good time, I recommend it. I recommend going to an Alliance of American football game. It's a good experience. It's a wonderful time. Uh, me and my friend had a great time. We chilled, we drank a beer, played, <laughs> ate a hot dog and just had a good, good experience. And uh, if if indeed you watched and you saw a guy on TV taking copious notes watching an Alliance of American football game, that was me. I'm a a giant nerd, and that's what I do. And uh, it was a really, really good experience. I highly recommend if you like football and you want to have a good time, you will absolutely enjoy going to an Alliance of American football game. I got to say this, too. Um, I am so impressed with the San Diego fleet. You know, after week one of the Alliance of American football, the San Diego Fleet were, what I said was the San Diego Fleet were the team that's most likely to make a massive improvement from week one to week 10. I thought they were, gonna, I thought they were really, really going to get better throughout the season. And it looks like I was right. So week one, the Fleet were abysmal. They were awful. Uh, they lost 15-6 to six to the San Antonio Commanders. They had numerous sacks, a bunch of missed assignments. Their quarterback played really bad. And, and all around, the San Diego Fleet looked like a mess week one. Now, in week two, they simplified things tremendously. They made a quarterback change to Philip Nelson. They ran the ball really heavily, and uh, they edged out a solid win. They got a solid win over the Atlanta Legends, 24-12. to But beating the Legends is not something I'm really impressed with. I think the Atlanta Legends are really bad. 
But they looked a little better week two. They, they made some better strides. They ran the ball heavily. They needed to rely on the run to move the ball on offense. But it was a, a good performance. It was something to be proud of. Now, you got to remember, San Diego Fleets, that their head coach, Mike Martz, is uh, an offensive genius. He's fantastic. His system relies, though, heavily on really small details. Mike Martz expects a lot mentally from his players. You know, some systems say line up will beat you physically. That is not what Mike Martz does. He really wants to outsmart you. He wants your guys to line up properly, run very specific plays, and it takes time to build cohesion in a system like that. Now, week three, the San Diego fleet made a statement. They put it all together. They played the San Antonio Commanders. If you remember, that's the team the fleet lost to week one. And this time, it looked like the San Diego fleet were very much improved. It looked like it really a different team altogether. They beat the San Antonio Commanders 31-11. to They had two long touchdown runs. They had a pick six. Their quarterback, Philip Nelson, was fantastic. And it was really, really cool to watch a team like the fleet completely transform their style of play from running, pass, throwing the ball every play to running the ball heavily and picking their spots when to throw the ball and playing a really good finesse game. But here's something that no one's talking about and probably no one will ever talk about again. Um, there's this forgotten moment in this game. that, uh, And 20 years from now, no one will talk about this. But week three, the Alliance of American Football, San Antonio Commanders at the San Diego Fleet. The very first play from scrimmage, San Diego's quarterback, Philip Nelson, threw an interception. The San Antonio defense rolled their coverage, and Philip Nelson did the one thing you can't do. The corner was sitting over the top waiting for a deep ball. He threw the ball up right into the cornerback's hands. That was one play. One play, they already threw an interception, and it got worse. The second play, the San Antonio commanders threw something like a 50-yard touchdown pass. So two plays in, 11 seconds into the game, it was 6 to nothing after the two-point conversion. It's been three plays, 8 to nothing. they're already losing. And, and at this point, you're losing, not only losing to a team, you're losing... San Diego Fleet were losing to the team that kicked their butts week one. It would have been very easy for them to say, ah, it's going to happen again and give up. But they kept fighting. And not only did they, did they keep fighting, they won 31 to 11. I, I was so impressed with this. I was so impressed with the fight this team showed. Not giving in when it got tough. Not feeling like, oh, this is just, just like week one. They kept fighting. They bounced back. And they really played it very clean really efficient game of football. And I just want to say I'm really, really impressed with the way the San Diego fleet have progressed this season. And I really wonder how big a stride can they make from week four to 10? Because week one to three was a massive jump. Could they become one of the better, more competitive teams in the league? I don't know. But if they play like they did week three all season, they're going to make a lot of waves and a lot of noise in the Alliance of American football. Okay. Um... I don't mean to be dramatic, but a war is coming in professional football. There is a really big battle coming up between two new professional football leagues in America. Neither of them are the NFL. Uh, In 2019, this year, we saw the Alliance of American Football begin its inaugural season. And next year in 2020, again, also in February, the XFL will begin. So next spring, we will have two competing professional football leagues in America. So I want to talk first about the Alliance of American Football. We're going to talk about both leagues, compare them, where's their funding coming from, who is founding them, and really who is, which one do we think will succeed and why? 
So first, the Alliance of American Football was founded by Charlie Ebersol, who is the son of an NBC television executive. And it was co-founded by his partner, Bill Polian, who is a the former Colts general manager. He drafted Peyton Manning. He won a Super Bowl. And he's also in the NFL Hall of Fame as a general manager. Now, some of the names involved in the Alliance of American Football, really big names. They got coaches like Steve Spurrier, Rick Neuheisel, Mike Riley, Mike Martz, Dennis Erickson, and Mike Singletary. A lot of really big names, guys who've been in high-level games at every level of football. The Alliance of American Football is also in eight different cities. Birmingham, Alabama, Salt Lake, Utah, Orlando, Florida, San Diego, California, Memphis, Tennessee, Atlanta, Georgia, San Antonio, Texas, and Phoenix, Arizona. Six of those teams do not have NFL franchises. Now, last week, about a week and a half ago, the Alliance of American Football received $250 million worth of funding from Tom Dundon, who is the, co- who's the owner of the NHL hockey team, the Carolina Hurricanes. Now, the biggest competitive edge the AAF has over the XFL is that they started a year earlier. I don't know though. this is as much a deal as people realize. The problem with this is that you started a year earlier. Congratulations. But I think all it might do is really just level the playing field. The XFL has a massive, massive following. They had one season in 2001 and then disbanded as a league. But what that did was create a really strong fan base that had a yearning and a lot of nostalgia for that league. So their revival in 2020 for a lot of people is an exciting Big event. Some people have no idea what the AAF even is, but those same people damn well know what the XFL is. And uh, frankly, I I hate to say this, I I like the AAF, but their partnership with television broadcasting this year was weak. It sucked. They have games on channels like NFL Network, CBS Sports, channels that you don't get if you have basic cable. And they also have a website slash app Bleacher Report Live is a lot of their games are on Bleacher Report Live. Behind a paywall, nobody's going to watch that. Uh, It's very disappointing because as a fan of football, I would love to see games on NBC, CBS, Fox, channels I have access to all the time. I have NFL Network. I don't have CBS Sports where I live. I have to watch on the stupid app on my phone. And uh, it's, it's, it's really disappointing to have certain games hidden behind paywalls. So, so far, the AF, is, their inaugural season's going well. They have steady, steady viewership, around 400,000 people for the games on NFL Network. When the, the rare time they do get games on CBS, they get four more viewers. They had 2.9 million viewers for their first game on CBS. And another game on CBS Sports last week had 1.1 million viewers. But next year, things are going to get much, much tougher for the Alliance. So a year from now, on February 8th and 9th in 2020, the XFL will begin. The XFL is founded and funded by WWE CEO Vince McMahon. He's investing $500 million. Remember all that money Tom Dundon gave to the AF? $250 million. Woo! The the XFL has $500 million. It's also worth noting that their commissioner of the XFL is Indianapolis Colts quarterback's Andrew Luck, his dad, Oliver Luck. So again, to be, to be clear, the XFL commissioner is Andrew Luck's dad, Oliver Luck. Oliver Luck is a former NFL quarterback. He played, I think, for the Houston Oilers. He's a for, the former vice president of the NCAA, a former commissioner of NFL Europe. He is also was once the athletic director at West Virginia. 
Oliver Luck understands what it's like to be an executive in sports. They also have a couple big names involved in their league. Bob Stoops, Bob Stoops, the former Oklahoma head coach, is looks like to be looks like he will be the head coach for the Dallas franchise. Jim Zorn, the former Seattle Seahawks quarterback, is the head coach of the Seattle XFL franchise. And the XFL is in eight different cities: Seattle, Washington, St. Louis, Washington, D.C., Dallas, Texas, Houston, Texas, Los Angeles, Tampa Bay, Florida, and New York City. One one interesting thing to me, so the Alliance of American Football's funding, they got $250 million, and it was reported that that should last them about five years. Now, supposedly, Vince McMahon's investment of $500 million into the XFL should only last about three years. The key difference might be, because of this, the timing of these investments, the AAF got their $250 million once the league had already been started. It's possible that the $500 million that the XFL has could be still being used for startup costs. We don't know how much funding the AAF got before their league began. Additionally, I think it's interesting that the XFL is only in one city that the NFL is not. Seven of their eight cities already have NFL teams. Only St. Louis in the XFL is a, a city that is hungry for football that hasn't had it before. So you could say, well, it's great. The AAF has six franchises in cities that do not have NFL football. However, I don't think it matters that much. What matters, it doesn't matter how many people in the city care about the game. It doesn't matter how many people go to the game. Attendance doesn't matter for these leagues. What matters is television ratings. Who watches? How much, how many, how many ad spaces can they sell? And how big and important are those ad spaces for their football games? Basically, whoever gets a better television partnership in 2020, whether it's the XFL or the AAF, whoever has better TV partners in 2020, that league is most likely to win the war between the two leagues. You got to be accessible and it should be easy to watch. If the XFL can come out and put their games on NBC and Fox or put them on a really big prominent network where it's easy and accessible to watch, the XFL will win. The AF must be really aggressive. They better use Charlie Ebersol better use his dad's connections and get himself in line with a really big TV partner because otherwise it's not going to work. I, I think I very strongly believe it. Both of these both of these leagues will not succeed. Only one of these leagues will be standing when the, it's all said and done. I think one of them is eventually going to dissolve, and one will be left standing. It's whether it's the XFL or the AAF. And uh, honestly, I think the XFL could win. I think the XFL could very easily win this war. They're the more established name brand, and they got a lot of people that care about their organization. I mean, every single time I make a video about the Alliance, I still have a bunch of people commenting down below how much they're ready for and excited about the XFL. Apparently, a lot of people really, really care about the XFL, and that's what a league needs. A new, young, upstart league needs intense, passionate support from fans who wildly will support their league. Now, now personally, look, I love the AAF. I'm a big fan of the AAF. I think that they are a player's league, and they're doing a lot of good things to help players get up to the NFL. And I like, look, I'm a big fan of the NFL. I like that the AAF is playing nice with the NFL, but that is not the brand and the, the thing that, that is not the edge the XFL is taking. The XFL is taking a stance we're better than the NFL. 
we're different than the NFL, and we're going to take them head on and make fun of Roger Goodell in the process. To me, the XFL feels like it's a Vince McMahon. It feels like Vince McMahon capitalizing on the moment. I mean, if he wanted, if Vince McMahon only cared about players and getting players to the NFL, he would invest in the AAF. But it's ego. Vince McMahon's ego says, I want the league. I want to make all the money, control the league. And I just, I don't, I'd prefer the AAF to succeed. I think that their, their league and their design of their organization is more player friendly and more set up to help players get to the NFL rather than compete with the NFL. Either way, whether it's the XFL or the AAF, uh, as a football fan, I'm excited. Look, you can't lose. If you love football, you're going to win either way because next year in 2020, there will be a lot to talk about, a lot of big storylines to follow, and there's just going to be a ton of football, whether it's the NFL in the early part of 2019 and moving up, sorry, in the later part of 2019 and then the early part of 2020 is going to be the XFL versus the AAF. No matter what, if you love football, you're going to win and... Uh, Having a lot of football makes me happy. So personally, if I had to bet, I would actually bet on the XFL. I think the XFL has better funding, more intrigue, and more people that care and are involved. I looked up the numbers. In 2001, when the XFL first started, their inaugural game had 14.9 million viewers on TV. Now, in comparison, the AF's inaugural game only had 2.9. It could be skewed. It could be different because, remember, that was 2001 versus 2019. And a lot fewer people watch television. People watch things on their phone and watch things on streaming services. I don't know. But if you go on that number alone, I think the XFL could have a lot more momentum behind it than I initially realized. And so I would, I would hedge my bets on the XFL actually winning the war between the AAF and the XFL. Also, here's a weird story. The AAF is being sued. <laughs> uh, a guy named Robert Vanek has come out and said that he should be, he should be credited for 50%, credited and paid. Robert Vanek feels that he should be credited for 50% of the Alliance of American Football. Robert Vanek says that he had a handshake agreement with the AAF co-founder, Charlie Ebersol. And uh, look, Charlie denies this completely. He says, look, his wishes are to remain focused on football. He said, we never had an agreement like that. And uh, Vanek also goes on and says many of his ideas that he had for the AAF were actually credited to, credited to Bill Polian, the other co-founder of the AAF. Here's what's most interesting about the story to me. In digging through all the files for this lawsuit, it also became clear that Charlie Ebersol initially decided and tried to call his league. Charlie Ebersol, the founder of the AAF, initially wanted his league to be called the XFL. He attempted to buy the XFL name from the WWE and NBA for 50, and NBC, excuse me. Charlie Ebersol tried to buy the XFL name from NBC and the WWE for $50 million. And I, I guess Charlie Ebersol met with the WWE CEO, Vince McMahon. And after the meeting, Vince clearly thought the AF was a good idea because what he did was say, screw you guys, I'm not going to work with Charlie Ebersol. I'm going to start a new league on my own. He did not want to involve Charlie Ebersol in his new league. And so it kind of reminds me actually of the way Nintendo started Sony. If, if you don't remember, um, <laughs> Nintendo created PlayStation. You may not know this. Nintendo and Sony were partners working on the Nintendo 64. They're working on a disk drive for the Nintendo 64. 
And Nintendo actually cut out Sony. They said, we're going to make cartridges. Screw you. We'll work with Philips on this. And the dispute really hurt the guys. And Sony and Nintendo, they parted ways. And as a result, Sony said, we can do this and started their own gaming company. They started PlayStation. Nintendo created their biggest competitor, the Sony PlayStation, by encouraging them and by screwing them over in the beginning. The AAF and the XFL have very similar origins, and it's really going to be fun to see who wins. I don't know. Um, I, think it's, I think it's also... So between the XFL and AAF, that's really interesting. Here's what I think is funny to me. I don't think the lawsuit from Robert Vanek really matters. Uh, I, I think here's what's fascinating about this lawsuit. It's weird to me that Robert Vanek waited until after the AAF had received $250 million of funding to speak up and start this lawsuit. How come three months ago he didn't care that he got screwed over? He knew this idea had been taken from him for a long, long time. It's just curious to me and very intriguing and a little bit money hungry that he waited until after the AAF got a bunch of funding to say, oh, hey, by the way, I deserve some of that money too. That, that's my take, and it's really bizarre to me. Um, but really, again, I think Robert Vanich, I think this, this lawsuit's silly and doesn't matter. But what we learned from the lawsuit is that the AAF was intended to be the XFL, and as a result of that meeting, you got two different competing leagues because they didn't want to work together to create one XFL league. <sighs> so I got this thing I don't remember on my show is you can't be in a hurry. Take your time, slow down, and don't worry about getting things out on time. It's so weird to me. What I struggle with in this room is I hear bodies outside all the time. I hear people walking in, in the bathroom and talking to each other. It's so bizarre. I've never lived somewhere like this where the walls are like paper thin. Um, I want to lead into this next segment. It's about the NBA. It's really long. It's probably going to be 20 minutes. Uh, and it's about the issue that we talked about about a week ago. So last week on the podcast, we talked about a really complicated issue. It surrounds the idea that whether or not NBA, the NBA should allow 18-year-olds to go straight from high school and enter the NBA draft. I made a video called, Should 18-Year-Olds Be Allowed in the NBA? It's been a week, and the more I think about that video, the more I look back on it and reflect on it, the less I like it. It's not an awful video. Uh, I did try to present both sides of the issue, but here's the problem. The video has no payoff at the end. There's no resolution. I ended the video by saying, look, I don't have the answers. I don't know how to solve the issue. And a friend of mine told me that that's actually kind of a cop-out. They said, I don't like this. And uh, I really didn't like the way you finished the video. So I took a look at it and I, I agree. I think the video didn't end well. The topic didn't end well at all. So I want to follow it up. And I just want to start by saying, I do not believe the NBA should actually change anything. When it comes to the systematic failures of the NBA draft, I don't think you can solve the problem. I think things should stay the way they currently are. And if you don't know how things currently are, here's how they are. The NBA says you must fit two different criteria in order to enter the NBA draft. The first thing is you must be at least one season removed from high school. You got to have played one year after high school somewhere else. And you must be at least 19 years old during the calendar year of the NBA draft. So, again, you got to play one year after high school, and you must be 19 years or older. 
And there are a lot, a lot of problems with this current system. It's not perfect. There are two sides to consider in this. You got to consider the players and you got to consider NBA decision makers, people like general managers in the NBA and NBA scouts who look for and recruit different players and, and scout players and decide whether or not they want to draft them into the NBA. So players and the league, there are two sides to this issue. And um, I, I do not believe the NBA should change their rules at all. The problem with my last video is I didn't clearly state that. There is no right answer. There's not a way to solve this. I feel bad. Like, I wish I could fix the system. I can't. Um, but I think the current system is somewhat of a compromise that allows for both sides, the players and NBA general managers, to have somewhat of a benefit. on. They, they both win a little bit, and they both lose a little bit. So in the current system, a high school, a basketball player graduates from high school, and they have two options. They can either go play college basketball, or they can go play basketball in Europe, go play professional basketball, get paid, and play in Europe for a year. Now most, like literally 99.9% .9 of these players that are ready to play in the NBA at 18 years old go from high school to college for one year, play college basketball, and after, if they're good enough and dominate one year of college basketball, they move on to the NBA draft. And it's called that those guys, roughly 15 guys a year, are called one and dones. They're players who go to one year of college and they're immediately done. They're one year in college, then they're done. It's called a one and done. And most NBA or NBA caliber players hate college basketball. NBA players do not like college basketball at all. And it, for a couple of reasons. Look, they have guys who have. These are players who have hundreds and hundreds of followers online. They have fame before they ever get to college campuses. They're famous from their dominance in high school. And NBA programs, or sorry, college basketball programs, the NCAA college basketball programs take these stars, guys who have tons of followers, hundreds of thousands, and really a lot of big impact. They're, they're stars. I mean, these kids are high school stars. The NBA and college basketball takes these high school stars and makes millions and millions of dollars on them with merchandise, ticket sales, television deals, shoe deals, promotions. Colleges make a ton of money off of their players, and the players never get any compensation. They never get any amount of money for their efforts. Here's the little amount of compensation a college athlete gets. They get free tuition for, for classes they frankly don't want. They just want to play football or they want to play basketball. They get free food, and they get a free place to live. Colleges make a ton of money, and they really only reward players with the basic essentials. Food, housing. It's meager compared to the amount of money that colleges make. Colleges make millions and millions of dollars, and the players see none of it. The years of hard work, all the effort they put in for years, they're not paid for. You can't discount all the hard work it took for an NBA for a, a college basketball player to get to college, and they're just not paid fairly. They're not compensated for their efforts. Now, and the NBA, this is their perspective. So players feel undervalued and underpaid. The NBA and NBA decision makers, general managers, scouts, the NBA would prefer to have players spending a year in college. They like that. Having potential NBA players spend a year in college allows 
the NBA another year to scout players. It allows them to make a more informed decision when you give a guy a million-dollar contract. It's like a two-step verification process. NBA decision-makers want a lot of information when they decide to pay a player. He's really good in high school. That's one step of verification. Let's make sure in college, if he's still really good in college, that's the second step of the verification process, and you can make sure you make a fully informed decision when you draft a player in the NBA draft. That is how the current system works. A really good basketball player plays one year of college, then enters the NBA draft. It's flawed, it's imperfect, but I don't think it should change. I do not think that should change at all. It's a compromise for both sides. I know it's, it's not perfect, it's ugly, but it's worth noting a majority of college basketball players play three to four years in college. It's very rare to have an 18-year-old kid straight out of high school who's ready to play immediately in the NBA. That's not a common occurrence. But it does happen enough we have to talk about it, so let's talk about it. The current system as it is, making those players wait one year before entering, is a perfect compromise for both the players and for the NBA. The NBA doesn't want 18-year-old kids in their league. They don't want young kids who lack maturity. It's a weird dynamic. If you're 18 years old or 19 years old on an NBA roster, as many of these one-and-done kids are, they're 19 years old. They can't go out and drink with their teammates. They're stuck inside playing video games at night while all their teammates are out having fun. And it's a weird dynamic. You're not really the same age as everybody else in the league. The NBA also does not want scouts at high school basketball games. They just don't. And frankly, I really think that NBA, the NBA would love to have players spend two years in college. They would like more time for guys in college to develop. The more info you get, the better of a decision you can make when you draft a player. And uh, I mean, look at just recently, we saw Markel Fultz. He was the number one pick in the NBA draft. A complete bust. He failed. And the problem is that N- NBA general managers are drafting 19-year-old kids, hoping that they're going to develop into a superstar without really knowing. The NBA is not drafting fully developed, really polished players. They're drafting projects, guys that they hope in three or four years could be impactful on an NBA roster. It's a weird dynamic. You're not drafting guys who are ready. I think the NBA, if the NBA could have it their way, they would have most players spend three to three years, two or three years in college rather than just the one season. I don't know. I think this is a way to meet in the middle. So NBA general managers wish that players were in college for more time. The players don't want to spend any time in college. They wish they could skip right to the NBA. Here's why the players want to get straight to the NBA. One of the reasons. First off, the players have families to feed. Like they have, they're rough. They come from bad backgrounds. Some of these guys want their family to have money, generational wealth immediately. That makes sense. It's not always that, that deep, though. Sometimes it's this, is that the first contract you get in the NBA is very limited. You can only make a certain amount of money. The second contract allows you to have a max deal, make a way larger amount of money. And the sooner you get into the system, the sooner you can accrue years towards making that second contract, which earns more money. I think the current system is a perfect compromise. It's a way to meet in the middle. Players don't get to the NBA immediately, but they still get to the NBA far earlier than maybe general managers would be comfortable with. And general managers get a year to really 
verify their purchase. I hate to say it that way, but look, if they're going to spend millions and millions of dollars investing a contract into a player, don't you want to make sure you're getting the right guy? A guy who can handle adversity, who's been through something? I, I don't know. Like, it, It's a big jump to go from high school basketball straight to the NBA. A lot of NBA players, if, you, if you're that good, you're the best player in your high school. Your entire life, you've never met anybody better than you. It can probably be a big shock to get to the NBA and go, oh, crap, get hit in the face, knocked back on your butt, and really, really struggle for the first time ever. So I don't know. Players get money sooner, uh, but they still got to spend one year in college. The way the system works, they get money sooner than they would if they were there for years, but they still got to spend one year. And the NBA doesn't get 18-year-olds, but they still get players a little bit earlier than they would like. The NBA would like to have more polished, more developed NBA players, but you got to make a standardized system that works. So my point is this. I, I really think that this system, the way it is now, is a perfect compromise. The NBA gets kind of what they want, but not completely. The players get kind of what they want, but not completely. you got to appease both sides. And right now, the way it is, is flawed, it's imperfect, but it's better than it could be. And I don't think there's a better answer. But I do want to include you guys in this conversation. A lot of people sent in uh, their ideas for how they would change the NBA draft. So many people who listen to the show sent me all kinds of ideas. Most of them are wild goose chases. A lot of these ideas were things that are like, you know, I, I've already said my stance. I wouldn't change the system. I don't think there's a better, more interesting system. But however, some listener, one listener sent in an idea that sent me deep down a rabbit hole. I want to take you through the whole thought process and that whole conversation. So first, one big reason why the NCAA cannot pay college basketball players is the inequality between programs. You cannot make a standardized payment scale for players. You can't. Duke basketball, North Carolina basketball, gigantic, massive programs make millions and millions, maybe even billions of dollars. However, in contrast, Washington State basketball, another program, a Division I program, makes nothing. They, they, they're like, they break even, if that. Duke basketball can afford to pay their players. Washington State University could not pay their players millions of dollars. They don't have that kind of capital. They don't have the revenue for that. So it's interesting. You know, that's one problem is the inequality between different programs. The other problem is this. How do you pay your star athletes? A guy like Zion Williamson is the best player. He's the, the highest, he's the biggest star player in college basketball. Whether he's the best or not doesn't matter. If he could make money in college basketball, Zion Williamson would make the most amount of money. But how do you, how do you pay players? How do you decide how to pay one guy and who's worth more than this? It's not professional sports. You can't say... You're worth the most, you'll make the most. It's not, it doesn't work that way. And how do you differentiate between Zion Williamson and a, just a random backup at the University of San Diego? You don't. Now, maybe what you could do is, here's one option. If you want to pay players, you could institute a salary cap. Maybe pick any number. Maybe every franchise gets, sorry, every program, <laughs> every college program maybe gets, say, $50,000 a year. And you can spend the $50,000 any way you want. And whether some programs, maybe really bad programs, would say, Zion, we'll give you $50,000, our entire salary cap, for you to come here. And some programs would very differently balance it. They'd give some players 10, another player 5, another player 8, and have a very different balanced cap system. 
But I like this idea because if a, if a small program wanted to offer the best player in the league, the best player in college basketball, $50,000, the best recruit in high school to say, come to our program, we'll give you $50,000. That's really cool. But then someone sent me a, this idea. A guy named Quinn, a listener named Quinn, sent me a really long message with the basic premise of this. Why don't we allow college athletes to sign endorsements? A- initially, I loved this. What I thought was giving players the ability to sign endorsements would solve the problem of how do you play, how do you pay star athletes? How do you pay a guy like Zion Williamson when you also got to pay a backup at San Diego. You can't pay them on the same scale. This way, the great players who deserve the most amount of money would get really big deals. If you have a giant following, if you're Zion Williamson, and you have a giant demand behind your name, you could sign an endorsement and endorse a product, get paid for it. I like this. I really like this idea. You know, you could have guys signing brand deals. You could have them signing autographs. They could have YouTube channels like that guy, the former UCF kicker. You could even make money from a normal job if you wanted. I really loved the idea of having college athletes sign endorsements. I like the idea of having them have brand deals and have endorsements and have being able to pay, sell their autographed stuff. That sounded like a good idea until I ran into this problem. What if an athlete at a Nike school, what if Zion Williamson was at, he's at Duke, a Nike school, what if Zion Williamson wanted to sign a endorsement with Adidas? Well, crap, you can't do that because you wear Nikes because you're at a Nike school. The school signs the shoe deal, not the players. The players are owned by the school. It's a messed up flaw. It's a big problem in their program. But no, I solved that. So I thought, okay, well, if, if you can't have players signing shoe deals because the schools control shoe deals, they control the apparel, maybe you could have players signing things, signing endorsements and being a part of endorsements that are non-apparel or clothing related. You can have them doing like Gatorade or Cliff Bars or just drinks in general. Maybe they're doing insurance commercials. Whatever you want. Maybe you could do brand deals with different kinds of products. And that's a solid idea at first. At first, it's a great idea to have players have giant social media followings. Maybe they could do, you know, they could take advantage of their following, have Instagram ads. That's a great idea. And that's really, I want to just say first, that's some of the hypocrisy of college is college markets itself as something to help students be more successful. It's mostly BS, right? College is a business, but it's very weird how differently student athletes are treated. If an 18-year-old college freshman has a million followers on Instagram, he can sign a brand deal tomorrow and it's fine. He can have endorsements and college has nothing to do with it. But the minute you put a basketball or a football in a player's hands, suddenly they're not allowed to make any money. It's very, very weird and bizarre. I don't like it. But this is why you can't give players endorsements. This is why players like Zion Williamson cannot sign endorsements and have personal income while they're in college. It would change recruiting completely. I might have lost you. You might not even be listening at this point, but basically whatever program has the most money behind it would control all the recruits in sports. So we see people like, like Nike's founder, Phil Knight, went to Oregon. He gives a lot of money to Oregon. Gatorade was invented at Florida. Their founder went to Florida. Under Armour has ties to Maryland. How long until a company says, we will give you a, a, like an $11 million endorsement if 
if you sign with the college, we decide. We want you to go to, I don't know, we love William and Mary. If you go to William and Mary, we'll give you an $11 million brand deal. You can't police endorsements. You can't do it. It works in theory. It's a great idea to say Zion Williamson, the star at Duke, has a giant following. He deserves to get paid. Well, let's let him sign with Cliff Bars. He can endorse Cliff Bars on his Instagram account. But how long until that would affect recruiting? I don't know. How long until Duke fans say, let's endorse Zion Williamson. We'll start a, a GoFundMe, and we're going to sign the best high school athlete in college because we're going to raise millions of dollars to bring him to our program. And look, in theory, that's a great idea. It's actually really cool. It's a solid idea. A GoFundMe to recruiting, I like that. The problem is schools don't have the money, schools that don't have a ton of money and schools that don't have a bunch of support behind their program would get absolutely crushed. How, how early would it start? If you're 16 years old, should a 16-year-old be recruited to go to college sports? Should they be making decisions that affect their family? I don't know. Maybe, like you have child actors, Drake and Josh, those kids were like 12 when they started acting. They made a ton of money, $25,000 an episode. Maybe, maybe you should have 16-year-olds making massive amounts of money. But there's a lot of gray area here. It's very, very weird, and it's very, very delicate. And if you have, I like this idea that if alumni at a really terrible basketball school all banded together and raised a ton of money, they could bring the best recruit in college basketball to their program. But if this happens, if a bunch of alumni band together, they raise a bunch of money, they're bringing a guy to their program, does that player sign a contract with the alumni? Like, what if the player takes the money and doesn't go to that school? Or what if he transfers? Or what if he just takes the money and drops out of college? He has $11 million. Why even go to college? This is where we run into all kinds of problems, and I, I just don't see a world where... I mean, look, maybe recruiting's already all about money, but at least... And maybe you could argue that if, if brand deals and this kind of stuff were instituted, maybe at least it would be honest. It would be open to the public... And it would be honest the way payers, players are paid in college sports. But I, I just don't, I don't think you should include, include money in recruiting as much as you can because it just, it's not competitive. For really low, bottom-of-the-rung programs, you will never be able to compete with top-shelf programs like NC State or North Carolina basketball or Duke. So honestly, I think the best solution, long story short, if you want to fix college basketball, there's nothing you can do. I think the way it is now is the best compromise you could possibly have. I think the best players in college basketball should wait one year, then enter the NBA. I like this. Uh, you know, one fan who likes my show responded to this and said that NBA general managers should not be involved in the process of deciding whether an 18-year-old can make money playing basketball or not. And I, first of all, this isn't true. If you want to make money immediately out of high school, go to Europe. You can go make a ton of money in Europe. You're allowed anytime. If Zion Williamson didn't like the idea of playing at Duke, he could have gone to Lithuania and played basketball. He could have made money doing that. But of all the options, I think the system it is now, where you make players pay, you make the NBA forces players to play one year outside of high school and be at least 18 before they join, 19 before they join the NBA draft. It's a good, it's a good program. It's not great. It's not perfect. But of all the bad options, it's the best. It's a compromise. For both sides, they win a little bit and they lose a little bit. So I, again, I want to restate, the NBA should not change anything. 18-year-olds should not be allowed 
to play to 18 year olds should not be allowed to enlist in the NBA draft. And I do not think the NBA should change a single thing about their rule book. I think it works. It's a compromise. It's not perfect, but nothing is perfect. And of all the bad options, this one is the best. Guys, my name is Zach Schaumler. I am dead tired. That, that last is 20 minutes, that whole final topic. And it, it, uh, it killed me. I don't know if it made any sense. I, I think it, it, I really tried hard to prepare that and to consider all options. And look, you can't please everybody. I did my best. Uh, but I just want to say thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate you guys. I am personally wiped out. I'm going to go edit this, put it on YouTube, and go to bed. Uh, but thank you so much. I appreciate you. Have a great day. And ba-dum, bum, bam, we are done. My name is Zach Schaumler. This is my podcast, Strong Opinion Sports. It is my favorite thing in the entire world. And I, I want to I ask for your help. I want this show to grow. I want more people to watch and more people to listen to this podcast. My dream is to do this show as my full-time job. I want to own it myself. I want to do it on the internet and have complete control. I don't want to do it for CBS or ESPN. I don't want to work for a big network. I want to own it myself. And if you believe in that dream, please do me a huge favor. Help me grow by telling your friends about this podcast. Share it on Facebook. Share a link on Twitter. Maybe you screenshot it. Put it on Instagram. I, I, I don't have a marketing strategy beyond this. This is all I have. You know, a lot of people, one of the most common comments I get on YouTube is, you have great content. We love your stuff. You deserve more viewers. What you should do is you should buy ad spaces on Facebook or Twitter or promote yourself and buy, buy revenue, like buy ads. I have no money. I am a broke college kid. I, I can't buy ad spaces. I, I, don't have, I don't have money to pay for books. And so my plan, this is my marketing plan. This is my strategy. All I plan to do is put every ounce of effort I have into making the very best podcast I can. I believe if I make a great product that people believe in, that people like, then they will share it with their friends. And so if you agree with that, if you believe in the show, if you like what I do, please do me a huge favor. Tell your friends about it. Help me grow by telling your friends about this podcast.